0: Welcome back to the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I am your host, as always, Robbie Burke. And before we get into today's show, I just want to give a shout out to all of the show's sponsors. Firstly, upmentorship.com, which is one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. The Ultimate Performance Online Mentorship is 20 hours of top class strength and conditioning information available for instant access right at your fingertips. To find out more, head over to upmentorship.com which is linked up in the show notes. Check it out and help support the show. Next, I want to give a shout out to Altus 360 and Altus Education, which are two outstanding online resources for any practitioner in the sports preparation profession. Be sure to head over to the show notes and check out these unique platforms. Next, I want to give a shout out to Joseph Johnson at Ultimate Alley Concepts. Ultimate Alley Concepts is a multifaceted company providing the most sophisticated scientific material in sports science. Ultimate Alley Concepts is the world's leading resource for translated sports preparation material. Next, I want to give a shout out to pap National Sports Performance Association, which is an online certification platform for professionals within the sports preparation profession. Currently, the NSPA has four certifications available. Speed and Agility, delivered by Lee Taft. Olympic Weightlifting, delivered by Will Fleming. Nutrition, delivered by Dr. Chris Moore and program design delivered by coach Robert Medios. For more information on the NSPA, be sure to check out all of the links in the show notes. Finally, I want to thank another brainchild of Pat Beef's, Athletes Acceleration, which is another online medium that delivers excellent educational resources for strength and conditioning professionals. And just like with all of our other sponsors, head over to the show notes to get the links to all of the available products that Athletes Acceleration has to offer. A full disclosure, except for Altus 360 and Altus Education, I am an affiliate to all of the show sponsors. Lastly, before we get into today's interview, I just wanted to let all the listeners know that the podcast is now on Patreon. If you feel that you are in a position to support the show, I would truly appreciate any donations you'd be willing to make to help support the podcast. Okay, that's enough rambling from me. Let's get into today's show. Alright, this episode's guest is Val Nesetkin of OmegaWave. Val is the co-founder and vice president of business development for OmegaWave, a company that merges the fields of neurology, cardiology, and exercise physiology with mobile computer technology. As a former elite athlete and coach with decades of experience testing elite athletes, Val learned that the type, volume, and intensity of training load should not be the primary focus but rather the timing of when the load is applied. Just a quick side note before we get into today's interview with Val. For some reason, my fucking mic did not sync up with my laptop for this interview, but the audio is still good enough and Val is crystal clear. But for whatever reason, my mic just didn't sync up with the Zoom player platform, but not a big deal. On this episode, Val and I discuss Val's background, I asked Val, why did he move to America? I asked Val for his biggest influences on him, both professionally and personally. I asked Val, what are the good and not so good things that he currently sees within the sports preparation profession? And what solutions would he offer for the not so good things that he currently sees? I asked Val, what is more important, technical, tactical, psychological or physical preparation? I asked Val, what technology in the future could help us measure skill acquisition and learning? I asked Val, how can we as coaches improve our terminology to develop our communication? Val shares with us his thoughts on heart rate variability. I asked Val to discuss the windows of trainability. I asked Val, what have been the biggest lessons he has learned so far in his career? I asked Val, how does he learn? Val gives us his top and current book recommendations. I asked Val, what is one thing that he does every day that is essential to each day? Val shares with us his top life advice. I asked Val, what was it like to grow up in the former Soviet Union? I asked Val, if he only had one year left on planet Earth, how would he spend that year and why? And finally, if Val could invite five people to dinner, dead or alive, who'd he invite and why? Guys, this is a great discussion with Val and I hope you really, really enjoy it. Val, thank you so yeah. much for making time to speak to me today. Just for any listeners who might be too familiar with who you are, give us the background, my man.
1: Oh, thank you for having me on it. And uh, my background is pretty simple. Uh, I was uh, selected as a young athlete in former Soviet Union as potential, good potential. Went to uh, sport high school made it to a professional club uh, was pretty good junior uh, made it to the national level as a junior then got injured at very young age i was uh, 19 years old at which time i had to kind of stop my sport career but by 20 i became as assistant uh, assistant to my own coach and uh, So I was going to college and uh, working as a coach selector first, where my primary responsibility was to drive around, watch uh, PE classes, uh, finding talented little kids, talk to their parents, invite them to the club, and then uh, train them for a year or so before I would pass them to uh, better coaches. Let's put it that way. And uh, eventually, slowly, slowly, but kind of quickly, I uh, progress in uh, that job. Uh, by the late 20s, I had uh, multiple athletes that made it to Ukrainian national team. And uh, my wife at the time, who well, I was also involved in coaching, was uh, six-time Soviet champion. and So... In 1990, I came and uh, basically uh, stayed in the United States, where I was uh, starting the Paul world program for women at University of Oregon. But I also uh, worked with a lots of post-collegiate athletes. Uh, all of this was uh, track and field, of course. And I did that until we found uh, Omega Wave. At which point, I switched my attention more to kind of product development, um, concept development, continued to coach uh, a few individuals, but spent more and more time uh, consulting uh, different organizations in sport. In particular, at the time, European soccer was one of our big uh, up-and-coming sports. So uh, I was lucky to work with uh, probably close to 20 teams in Champions League, not counting multiple national teams, training for cup, World Cup. So over the years, I kind of, uh, instead of uh, on the field coach, which I still love the best, unfortunately, with my travel schedules, can't do it anymore, right? Um, because if you sign an athlete full time, it's your responsibility to provide the best services you possibly can, which my schedule doesn't allow. But I still do lots of consulting for different sports organizations, individual sports, team sports, and they are primary on the methodology of training. So my background uh, and specialty, I would say, is methodology of training. Uh, that's kind of the overview of where I'm coming from
0: why did you move to America well
1: I visited the United States in uh, 1988 before Olympics Uh, I was coach for Ukrainian national team juniors so I brought them and we competed all over United States uh, including uh, Oregon University of Oregon and First time in Soviet history, they actually allowed us to stay not not in the hotel, but in uh, American families, right? Mm. So, which was quite a unique uh, experience because I never done that before traveling so much, still didn't have that opportunity. So we struck some good friendships and stuff. And eventually I just got invitation from uh, people to come back to Oregon. And that's exactly what I did. So I came to Goodwill Games in 1990 and never went back.
0: Uh, Could you speak English back then?
1: No, I didn't, actually. Uh, I learned English uh, when I moved here already. I did speak uh, pretty decent German because I was uh, studying German through high school and college, and then I was sent as an exchange uh, student. I worked in a sports club in Berlin during Soviet times as a coach. Um uh, so that kind of helped. I lost my German, but I c- acquired English. So
0: I'm sorry. I, I I don't know if you did say this, but what, what sport did you play? What what what? Was
1: I, I did track and field myself,
0: which, which specific events. All uh,
1: so I started as a high jumper, uh, then did, uh, decathlon. That was my primary event, uh, decathlon. And then when I got injured, I tried to still compete, uh, I had uh, shoulder problems, couldn't throw, couldn't pole vault, couldn't do anything, discus or anything. So, but I tried to make it back up there in hurdles. So I made it to a couple national championships, but uh, no success.
0: Mm-hmm. A question I love to ask all the guests while is about their influences. Who would you say have been your biggest influences on you professionally, but also even personally? So both professional and personal influences.
1: Well, I will start with a regional one and then, uh, people that over time influenced me, the original, of course, we always the same way. It's my own coach. Right. Mm-hmm. And he encouraged, uh, quite a lots of, uh, desires to study more my own event. Like, Uh, high jump for example I started as a high jump as a kid and uh, to the point I always had the interest I always knew I wanted to be a coach my father was a coach he was a volleyball coach and uh, I grew up basically on the road with him uh, traveling with his team and uh, while they were attending tournaments and playing championships and stuff like that so uh, at very young age, uh, the science of uh, sport really uh, interested me, and I was subscribing uh Track and Field magazine at the time, which, to be honest, a lot better than what it is nowadays because that magazine at the time was specifically made for coaches. wasn't for a uh, popular publication. So there were... Uh, Discussions on all kind of scientific matters of track and field, be that uh, biomechanics or physical preparation or different methodologies of training applied around the world, uh, where they would take individual athletes, be that American athlete or Soviet athlete, and break down their programs and try to figure out what uh, works, what doesn't. Mm. So it was a wonderful ju- uh, magazine that I absolutely loved and. Um, At very young age, I already started trying to figure out how to make uh, proper approaches in hijab based on uh, individuality of the athletes, on their weight and their, uh, you know, predisposition and their uh, limb lengths and stuff like that and uh, centrifuge forces. And I just did it for fun. It's always been of interest to me. And... um, so my own coach was uh, my first influence, but not from the positive uh, thing you think. Yeah. Positive things uh, were he stimulated uh, great interest in learning. Uh, the negative thing was he wasn't that great of a technique development guy, which uh, actually I sucked as a high jumper. Uh, I never jumped higher than 2 meters to uh, two, 10 centimeters whatever it is, 610 or something, even though by uh, all the tests, I could, according to all the tests, I should have been jumping over 220. So that was a great influence because I tried to figure out what the hell am I doing wrong and uh, why can't I do it. I was quite amazing physically, uh, but technically I wasn't where I needed to be. So that was the first kind of uh thing that stimulated my interest in trying to figure things out and then over the span of life to be honest i've been very uh, lucky person somehow don't know how i met uh the best coaches that changed the world of sport And I can't uh, name one individual one, per se, because they all contributed to my interest and my knowledge. Uh, Anybody from, I was lucky to uh, have multiple discussions with Arthur Lydiard, who was uh, visiting my friend Dick Brown often in Oregon, and Dick Brown himself. Uh, They're famous uh, truck coaches that, literally changed uh, the world of coaching to uh, Yuri Verkashansky, who was big influence on me. And uh, I was lucky to personally know him and have discussions with him and uh, discuss his ideas and my ideas uh, to uh, my current friends, like uh, Hank Reinhardt and Randy Huntington that I learned a lot. So it's kind of... Uh, multiple people. I don't know if I can pinpoint one particular person that influenced me the most because honestly everything, uh, all the methodologies we develop, it's more a combination of knowledge of all of those people.
0: Great stuff. Question I'd, I'd really like to get your thoughts on before we dive a little bit more into some of our specific topics. In your opinion, what are the good and the not so good things that you currently see within the physical preparation profession? So again, like what what are the good things? Like, what are things that you look at and say, you know, I think as a profession, we're doing a good job there, but on the other end of that continuum or spectrum, what are things that you're like, ah, we don't do a good job of that? And with the not so good Val, what solutions would you offer?
1: Yeah, well, uh, let me start with uh, fundamentals. Mm-hmm. I think this is very, very important. And uh, before I actually talk about the action, what good and what not so good we do, let's start with fundamentals. First and foremost, I have a feeling that uh, we are very, uh, our terminology is not quite well developed, mm-hmm. especially in this uh, field of uh, physical preparation and so, good example. Quite often, I am part of the panels where sports scientists, uh, medical professionals, and uh, performance specialists are in the same room discussing uh, the possible solution to solve uh, different type of problems. What is very clear, when a scientist speaks or medical doctor speaks, you can understand them uh, clearly because all the terminology they use mean only one thing and one thing only. And it's very well defined. So when uh, sports professionals think, uh, talk, it's almost like everybody has their own terminology.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So uh having common terminology is underlying basis for all future discussions and if we want to improve our, this field we need to make sure that discussion is ongoing and uh we clearly understand what each one of us talking about so every term people throw out there have to be very clearly defined and mean precisely what it means so that's a uh, actually In the former Soviet Union, uh, all of the terminology that we used as the coaches was quite well defined, and they drilled you on it. You could not pass any exams if you didn't know the terminology day or night. They wake you up at night, and you needed to explain all the processes of methodology or physiology in precise terms. And one word that was wrong, they would basically kick you to the curb. So I think as a base, before we go anywhere further, we need to make sure that the field terminology is quite well defined. So we all, performance specialists, all speak the same language. That's number one. Second, uh, let's start talking about now the actual uh, process of uh, preparation. You know, in my country, at least, and I hate keep referring back to those old days because but there were certain things that have been done right right uh, so wanted or not i kind of have to go a little bit back mm-hmm. um we didn't have conditioning what you call classic conditioning here specialists specialist because every coach was pretty much uh both Uh, the sport-specific coach and the what we call here conditioning coach. In my uh, terminology, there is no differences, really. So both, uh, if you have system where you have uh, main head coach or skill coach and uh, conditioning uh, coach, uh, it's one and the same. They both need to know both fields in uh, great detail. Because one thing I observe here, and in my opinion, it's a limitation when, let's say, an NFL team rolls into the uh, weight room after the practice on the field and uh, the solution presented to them, quite often I ask the conditioning coaches, okay, do you know what they actually did right now on the pitch? And the answer, <coughs> quite often, more often than <coughs> I would like is, No, we don't, because we have our own plan. And that's always been puzzling to me. I hope it's changed, because for the last five years I've been out of the field, kind of, while I was stationed in Finland, developing products. Uh, I'm just returning back to uh, working with teams directly. But that was quite uh, interesting, because how can you put a load on somebody without clear knowledge what load they just finished. So that was huge discrepancy. In my opinion, uh, in this field of performance, uh, there should be no clear separations. It should be one and the same process, including recovery physiotherapy specialists uh, that have to be on the same page as well because reality when the definition of uh, training process and process include not only uh, stresses and loads but also recovery and recuperation activities as well it's one and the same Mm. so when you have in this process people that don't know what the other part doing I think it's a huge limitation so and here now That's why I want to talk a little bit about limitation also from the standpoint of how conditioning coaches perceive themselves. The most common uh, thing when I talk to conditioning coaches, and probably not the most advanced ones, but let's say if I talk to, well, some advanced ones too, but specifically newbies that want to become conditioning coaches. I don't like that word. I like more like performance specialist whatever you call it
2: mm-hmm. uh,
1: because it's much more than just conditioning it's much more so but uh, the question i normally ask what their responsibility would be in a teams or with individual athletes i constantly hear the same same uh, story how they need to increase speed and power and uh, agility and you name it. and to me this is all byproducts of their job should be not the primary targets the primary targets for this type of individuals depending on the sport are a creating conditions for successful skill acquisition when these athletes are actually training on the field with their primary coaches and trying to learn the most important part of their sport which is uh skill technical tactical basically improve their mastery and the conditioning feeds in there not only from standpoint of speed and power or whatever that might be but also they're responsible at creating condition for most efficient skill acquisition that's number one number two uh, they have to control the functional state of the team to make sure or individual to make sure when, uh, during the season, when team gets on the field, they have the greatest ability to display their skill or their mastery, I should say. Mm -hmm. There's no other uh, primary objectives. If you're a performance specialist, it's your responsibility that when team is going on the field, they're in the best possible state and then can display their mastery at the highest level. And it will, quite often I hear this stories. well, but the head coach did this and that. Well, that's what uh, performance specialist means. You are not there to just pump iron, you are there to allow the coach to do his job and adjust your behavior. Sometimes you need to train them hard, sometimes you need to, uh, recover them from what uh, they did un- with head coach, right? Mm-hmm. So in this way, I see this position is much more important than just strength and conditioning, big deal. So strengths, that's the easiest way to do, increase somebody's strengths or increase somebody's uh, uh, power outputs or whatever. We all know how to do that. There is plenty of textbooks that are telling us it's much more different to actually manage your athletes in such a way that you assist them at acquiring skill, tactical knowledge, uh, technical knowledge, and being able to display their uh, acquired skills at the highest level, day in day out. That requires a different approach.
0: That's because strength is so easy to measure, whereas improvement in technical and technical performance, you don't have a direct feedback about, well, has this actually improved? Like, it's not as immediate as a, as a strength number. Like, you, like, we can't actually tell if someone has actually learned something, we can only infer it from performance over time.
1: That's right. That's right. But creating condition, there is certain rules of how you create condition and, uh, condition for better skill acquisition, for oh, example.
0: That, absolutely, absolutely.
1: Yeah. And uh, actually, depending on the sport, uh, skill can be measured quite uh, accurately. So if it's a individual sport, we can measure your skill in successful performances as a primary output as well as a uh, biomechanical precision or tactical knowledge. It's actually not as hard as uh, people might think. Yeah, yeah. Uh, Te- so,
0: in in Team Sports though, it, would be pre- it is a bit difficult, though, wouldn't
1: you say? It, it would be much harder, yes, that's true. Uh, but uh, the amount of time now and amount of technologies we possess that yeah. uh, monitor every single move of every individual Including, including, uh, but not limited to the the amount of uh, sprints they do per game, or accelerations with precise time frames and uh, drop off uh, numbers and all kind of stuff. Actually, can do pretty good job at uh, doing that, right? Yeah, yeah. So, but when we talk about this, is where we come back to uh, overall uh, preparedness, right? Uh, because we need to be able to uh, measure preparedness of the athlete. And uh, preparedness of the athlete is a multifaceted kind of uh, state. uh, We have, of course, everything starts with uh, sport-specific skill. So if you are, doesn't matter what sport you are, if you don't have excellent skill for your given sport, you are somewhat uh you probably doesn't matter how physically gifted you are you are not going to be as successful right so
0: Well, on, on just before you go on there on a yeah. hi- on a hierarchy of importance yes be- between tactical technical physical and psychological if you were putting a hierarchy together in terms of importance what would rank number one to number four there so... It's
1: change. It changes over the span of your development. If it's a uh, child sport where they just started, the most important part uh, would be the uh, sport specific skill, right? Number one. And as uh, they change over time, go through puberty, go through young age, go to mature athlete, that priority can change, and it changes depending on individual limitations. Yeah. For example, if we take the best player in the world, let's say somebody like uh, Ronaldo or Messi, right? So in their case, the uh, most important part as the skill and uh, mastery is already installed it's not going to disappear and there is no coach in the world who can teach Messi how to play, right?
2: Yeah, yeah. Uh,
1: So in that case the priority might be shifted A first uh, to make sure that they're a viable part of tactical strategy of the team so they need to become a little bit more well more tactically aware and the second part would be psychophysiological because now they have, if they already possess the skill and they already uh, contributing member of this tactical uh, team, now they have to be able to execute it with high precision, with high uh, physical output, week after week after week, right? Mm-hmm so maybe a couple times a week even because in uh on that level you have uh cup games you have championship games you might have european uh the uh uefa games or fifa games who knows so in that case the uh psychophysiological can become primary factor it changes depending on uh, age or when you go what part of your sports development you're going to, your child, your uh, youth, your junior, your adult that can change based on that. and later on, it also can change on your uh, individual limitations. For somebody, the biggest obstacle can be psychological, and therefore you need to identify that. And you need to know how to assist individual in that field.
0: If that's a great answer too, and I fully understand and appreciate Of yeah, course it's going to change over the course of an athlete's development. If though you had an athlete and they had comp- competent levels in all four areas, what what is most important there? Is, is it like, because I, I, I was talking to Kieran when I'm flat one day and he was like, listen, if, if you don't have like the basic, technical elements he's like you can't execute tactical and then he's like if you don't have the mindset so he's like well that's
1: not entirely correct but pick up the sport give me sport because the answer will depend on the sport
0: well my background is more so in team sports so let's just say rugby soccer american football let's take
1: soccer the most important part and for that you need to understand what mastery is is the ability of the individual process multiple channels of information at once Mm -hmm. so they have to read the field they have to read and uh process that information digest it momentarily like in a fraction of a second and uh, make the right decision that is not you can be very good skill but if you're not capable of doing that uh your value as a player will be lower good example, and it's true example. When I was still working in Soviet Union, I was working in a track and field club, but we had a soccer club. It's still there, it still plays UEFA games, and uh, one time they even won cup of, uh, in Soviet Union. And we had a player who was very awkward, very tall, uh, probably good over one ninety ninety five centimeters tall, barely could move.
2: Uh,
1: By observation he had uh, no skill because a ball would bounce off him like from the wall, right? But it's always bounced into the goals. So he was always at the right time, at the right place, and even though everybody was laughing at him, uh, because he cannot control the ball, he uh, one season he scored more, goal, more goals in the uh, Soviet Union than anybody else. Mm-hmm. So that's an ability to process the data, make a uh, right decision, and execute it. So that's a true mastery. Of course, master is much more than that. So sure. I've seen, uh, I've been on contract with few of those uh, premiership clubs. I mean, you're from England? Uh, Ireland. Ireland, okay, in England. Uh, so, and uh, observed uh, academy players quite often. Some guys had the actual skill, like uh, the biomechanical precision, what you, you wouldn't believe, the footwork, the but when it comes to decision-making process they were not as successful so if i say only one thing what is the priority the priority is that ability to process the multiple channels of information at the same time for example can you imagine multiple players moving around you with different velocities different uh directions and you need to make a quite quick decision on what you're going to do
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's number one then of course the skill itself that's mastery that's a real mastery then the skill itself is important too because if uh, after that you need to if you decide that you need to uh, go yourself instead of passing and you need to uh, pass your opponent, you have to have that skill, right? Yeah. To execute that. And then you have to do it uh, all game long. So you need to have a physiological component installed. There is gradations, but the most important one, I hope I explained uh, well.
0: Yeah, no, it's great. And
1: that's what I'm saying quite often. It's... uh, misunderstood or even not taught how do you acquire that ability because it's Mm. this ability can be acquired if proper knowledge of skill acquisition and mastery are applied to child slash pro players you have to create the type of environment around them that will enhance this ability to make uh to increase their um Mastery, But unfortunately, we are too linear and very few people, when I talk to people, very few people actually understand how to create that type of environment that will stimulate uh, creation of these type of abilities.
0: So would that be a case of like Newell's constraints-led approach, like organism task environments, setting up, setting up situations like that?
1: Absolutely. It's all setting up situations, uh, making those uh, situations gradually more complicated, not from a resistance standpoint.
2: Oh, yeah, of
1: course. Or not from, but uh, you're absolutely correct. That's exactly what it is.
0: And just going back to a question I asked earlier, um, you mentioned that there, you know, because of technology and the advancement, the advancement of technology, it's it's becoming it's becoming more of reality to be able to measure learning and skill acquisition. Now, what, what do you see as the technology that's going to come in the future to allow people to be able to measure skill acquisition to, to, to a degree, like we can measure like quantitative data in a weight room. Like, can, can you see that ever coming to fruition? Cause again, I think that's, that's why a lot of coaches shy away or can't get a grasp or don't want to understand skill acquisition because it's just so hard to measure. In, compar- in comparison to like just resistance training which is so easy to measure.
1: Yeah I, I think uh, actually the solution is not technological but methodological. Mm, mm. So it's uh, creating these scenarios, uh, sports specific scenarios, that your athlete has to uh, execute through training and that is uh, easier to validate than for example video videos are great too don't take me wrong i mean at least in nfl they do a great job at analyzing every game every move every uh pattern but there is so many degrees of freedom right it's very hard by watching videos Mm. uh, to determine if it was the best decision we only can uh judge it by end success
2: Yeah. yeah so let's
1: say somebody scored touchdown. That's success. But was there an easier way to score a touchdown? Who knows?
2: Yeah.
1: Maybe. So we judge decision by the uh, final outcome, and that's fine. But methodologically, we can also create lots of scenarios where we can uh, create the, that type of testing in the uh, more controlled environment right and evaluate this elimination basically what it is in that master you have to from many degrees of freedom that you have as an athlete and many options to execute you have to choose one option that is the most probable to uh, give you success yeah And with uh, proper, I think, uh, methodological knowledge, uh, that type of assessments can be created.
0: Mm -hmm. Very good. Uh, Just going back to what you touched on earlier about terminology, uh, what What solution would you put forth to to improve the terminology among physical preparation or whatever sports preparation coaches whatever
1: <laughs> well, I think uh the proper way would be uh changing the uh, educational process of conditioning yeah, and like
0: just right val, now just you go on there val because um, that 's where I was going to go to with this question um, so i, I don 't know if you know who Jane Smith is the thinker but he uh, put forth that, like, sports preparation in terms of education should be just, like, law or medicine in that, like, you know, your physios, your sports-specific coaches, your strength and conditioning coaches, they should all be gotten rid of, and they should just all go to college, and they should all just do, like, you know, sports preparation, like the way all medical practitioners go to medical school first before they specialize. So he's like, all coaches should just go like, to, to, like uh, – you know, co- like coaching preparation, and they should do like their four or five years there. And then after that, they specialize into their branches of, you know. Hey,
1: I like that. Because I the, like it, that.
0: His, his whole idea is then that we all speak the same terminology. And He'd also, he'd also use the example that he's like, you know, if you talk to anyone in physics, they all talk through maths. So he says there's no issue with terminology. If you talk to an
2: engineer. Absolutely. I, I've been, been preaching
1: this course. for the past 20 years. Yeah, yeah. It's absolutely, I totally agree. And it's not because I'm smarter or anything, because that's how our system worked. Mm-hmm. It was easier to understand people. I could talk to any coach in any sport in former soviet union who went through education it didn't matter what department they went to i was on the department of track and field we could speak exactly the same language yeah. and that was uh much easier because we didn't need to spend time and time and time to figure out what the hell are we talking about yeah. so we could go directly into the topic and discuss it on a good level
0: but uh like so many You know, uh, I'll just say strength and conditioning coaches, because that's the title they usually use in the West. Like, a lot of them, because I I came from that world as well, like we we don't get education in first principles. Like, we're not taught physics. Like, we're not taught, we're we're taught a bit of physiology, but we're not taught anything about biochemistry or physics, and we're definitely not taught anything about maths, and if you want to understand, like, the universe and everything in it, you know, like, the hierarchy is biology, which is underpinned by chemistry, which is underpinned by physics, and then maths, so Like, most coaches have poor rudimentary knowledge of first principles. So, like, that's why, like, terminology is so poor among, you know, an S&C to a physio. Absolutely.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Actually, you almost, uh, I give those examples quite a lot on the uh, physics Mm -hmm. and uh, how important it is. To understand, so if we understand, it's actually quite the opposite. It all starts with uh, physics. Mm. So the rules of physics that uh, make biology possible. Yeah. So yeah. if the rules of physics would be different, there would be no biology. Absolutely, yeah. Uh, so the, if we do anything in the universe, and as long as we apply uh, laws of physics, we can do it in very different ways and still achieve uh, success.
2: Yeah, yeah.
1: Absolutely. We can use different approaches the same in training. There is no one underlying training system that necessarily better than others. So, we all coaches have rights to establish their own approaches to training under one condition. They all apply laws of biology and laws of physics.
0: Absolutely, yeah Couldn't agree more. so and they can uh, they can
1: experiment all they want what's uh, unfortunately happening quite often uh physics laws are hard to not apply it's kind of uh but biological laws quite often coaches don't apply mm-hmm. if they don't understand the uh how body adapts to environment if they don't uh understand uh why we are who we are from standpoint of evolution Uh, then it's very they quite often chooses the solutions that are not suitable neither evolutionary or uh, based on biological laws how our organism works Mm -hmm. but there is another problem that they will have to face and uh, bypass i actually taught dick brown who was a professor of physiology and uh, famous coaches in the University of Oregon, he coached people like Mary Decker Slaney, Susie Hamilton. They, he coached, I don't know how many Olympians, tens of Olympians over the span of his life. He quite often would ask me to come and teach his classes, which were uh, postgraduates in uh, sports science. And a very simple question when I would ask, trust me, they knew about laws of biology, better than I ever knew on a cellular level on any type of levels they were so incredible but the simple question of okay so let's take this hypothetical person here is the data this is his uh, assessments now build the training process for them that was the end of story all their knowledge stopped right there yeah, yeah. they start reciting something they read in a book or something they've done themselves or and when you ask why would you do this the answer was well this is what i done Mm. well so when it comes to education proper education it's not enough to have that education only from standpoint of uh, physiology or, or psychology we have to add methodology
0: You need to be able to put it into a context. You
1: have to be able to put it in context. So whatever that individual you said, John Smith or whoever is, I really like that idea, but they need to make sure that curriculum covers everything. And when it comes to the creation of the successful coach, it's a methodology that will determine how successful they are.
0: Mm.
1: So all of that basic knowledge is mandatory. Absolutely mandatory.
0: And see but the, it's a
1: methodology that will make them
0: yeah.
1: great coaches. Uh,
0: and the problem with, with that is that I think, you know, a lot of people seem to just assume that most coaches know these fundamentals, <laughs> but they don't. Like no, they don't. If you ask, if you ask most, like, most coaches, uh, what are Newton's three laws of motion, I'd say 80% couldn't tell you.
1: Well, and even if they understand, uh, they can answer questions like that, even in physiology. So, for example, lots of coaches will understand physiology, but it's not understanding the concepts. It's you need to work in applied field.
0: Yeah, it's to apply. It's how
1: all of these fits together into one coherent solution. Yeah. And that's where modern methodologies of training have to be a kind of top of the pyramid. So, everything else you said, physics, uh, biology, physiology, psychology, it's all underlying underlying layers, but at the top, you need to be able to merge all of them into one uh, solution. And that's where methodology. That's why Soviet Union was so successful for so many years, The top... Uh, regardless how we perceive it, that top uh, part uh, of periodization, when periodization was created, or block training, that's what allowed them to merge most of those knowledges into one, even though it was empirically based, but it was a approach, very well-defined approach. can it be improved? Absolutely, mm-hmm. it can. Methodologically it can, but the overall ideas, they were uh, quite uh, life-changing for many athletes.
0: Even, even still, like you, I know you said there that it was empirical, but it was underpinned by objective scientific fields.
1: Absolutely, absolutely, of course. So I think as a long-term, let's say if we take periodization, and I don't care, classic periodization, block trial, it's not that important. As a long-term development, when you take uh, a little child and try to bring him into sport, and all the way until their uh, super performance as an adult athlete, the overall ideas of how to bring it based on knowledge of uh, human growth development right Mm -hmm. was
2: correct
1: so as a big picture i think prioritization is still wonderful i mean unless we're doing the same thing every day prioritization rules but it needs to be adjusted now nowadays we have more information more data we can do it a lot better and uh so on the long term they made very few mistakes on the short term, from day to day training, microcycle to microcycle, uh, mesocycle to mesocycle, it can be adjusted quite significantly to optimize it further, based now on the uh, rules of biology. Mm, brilliant
0: stuff. So, uh, just we don't have too much longer left, but. Um... I'd like you to touch on the, the windows of adaptability, if if you want, because uh, in fairness, this has been a great conversation and I'm happy it's gone in, in the direction it has, because I know at the start you were kind of like, I don't really want to talk about HRV or, you know. <laughs>
1: no, I can talk about HRV, actually. One thing I want to say uh, about HRV, and I think that's important to understand, Uh The history of HRV, I don't want it to go the same direction that it went in Russia, where it's nowadays almost uh, non-topic. The second you start talking about it, they just shut you down. And the reason being for that, as you know, Russia is the one who originated the wide uh, application of HRV. Is
0: it, uh,
1: well, is, is it true it came from the cosmonauts? Is that true, the cosmonaut program? <laughs> well, uh, yes and no. So let's, uh, HRV as a method been known for thousands of years. So the Chinese medicine, when they listen to your pulse, that's exactly what they do. They just measure uh, measuring rigidity of the pulse or uh, variability of the pulse. So as a hypothetical method, it's been known for a long time, but as a measured method and interpretation of that uh, through proper assessment came from uh, Professor Bayevsky, that was the head of uh, Russian uh, space medicine uh, development. That's true. It came from uh, Bayevsky primary and it was originally applied in uh, space medicine. But then, of course, it's drifted into military, eventually drifted into sport. And a problem with hard workability become in Soviet Union, uh, it's the claims they made. I always tell people, you have to be very careful with what claims you're making. Because if you make too big of a claim and it doesn't pin out, they will disregard your uh, solution regardless of how good it is. Because it doesn't match the claim you made. And unfortunately, with HRV, people start making claims that that's the only thing you need, and it shows you overall health of organism as non-specific syndrome. And therefore, heart variability that's all we need to know to uh, adjust human behavior, be that training emotional or reality cannot be further from the truth. And that's why when those claims were made, but people start seeing that's not the reality, a lot of coaches in the Soviet Union measured HRV and found out uh, that it had very low uh, relationship to performance, for example, right, in many sports, in some other sports, it did. So all of those claims didn't pin out. And the simple explanation. Explanation is this: I'm not trying to promote our technology or anything, but just uh, as a uh, concept, part can never be more informative than a whole. So HRV only analyzes when we let's say we take ECG. HRV is only analyzing activity R to R, nothing else. But there is so much data incorporated in uh, P, QRS, T segments as well. So that's a whole of ECG. So what you quite often find out, the HRV can show you absolutely optimal balance, but at the same time you will already have ST elevated or reverse uh, T segment, which indication of pre-cardiac arrest uh, conditions. Meanwhile, HRV telling you, hey, thumbs up, go ahead, do it. And even then, we won't, even if we do take ECG as a whole, it only tells us about cardiac system. So the HRV only talks about regulation of the actual uh, cardiac system, right? The pump. Only regulation, nothing else. ECG tells us about the uh, function of the actual muscle. So those two together are wonderful for, uh, I'll say, identification of cardiac state, but they're not enough to uh, make conclusions about overall readiness of the athlete,
2: Mm.
1: because especially HRV, the the autonomic nervous system has this name for particular reason. The better developed athlete you are, the better your uh, HRV will be or supposed to be, right? In that case, the relationship between other processes of the body and the acardium is kind of uh, limited. So you can be losing your feet from gangrene, but your cardiac system or uh, your autonomic system will be still in the optimal state. So the better developed you are. So it's a wonderful method. I'm not trying to criticize it, but we need to take it for what it is and make claim for it, for what it is, because otherwise it will go the same way as it went in Russia, where the claims were too big to fit. And because of it, they actually stopped using hardware variability for many, many years.
0: Hmm. So how did OmegaWave come about? How did that all start?
1: Uh, well, this is actually started from that precise understanding that uh, we needed to find a data that will allow coaches to make daily decisions with uh, more precision. And conventional methods like lab tests, uh, which we had plenty, didn't work because they were stressful, they were invasive, the data wasn't available on the spot and athletes had to travel all the way to your lab to collect it so the idea of technology came from the (coughs) two gentlemen in russia uh, who tried to solve coaches problems because we worked always together as a coach i only was interested in solutions so give me the data that I can apply right away yeah. And so the idea at that time came. So my uh, co-founders were one biologist, one engineer. So my specialty is more methodology. So we needed a product body like me. And understanding was right away. So to create new technology, it would have to be non-stressful, non-invasive, because otherwise athletes will not be doing it. The uh, information has to be collected in their, in athletes environment, not in the lab, because you're also limiting yourself. And most importantly, the information has to be available right on the spot. And we needed to build the bridge to coach's decision-making process. Raw data means very little. So you have to build the bridge that create expert system that will take all the raw data from multiple biological systems and then give you the guidelines, uh, not tell you how to coach, by no means. Just tell you based on biological laws and based on what we observe at this point in uh, your physiology. This is the guidelines, this is what you can do successfully, this is what you can do unsuccessfully. That was the basic concept that over years now developed into what you see, but what you see now is quite limited compared to our professional system. Because that came, uh, the professional methods for professional system, that we had seven different methods. Now we have only in our uh, current system only three different methods. We slowly uh, put in everything from professional step by step, we're putting it in a new system. So the methods were uh, chosen based on uh, Anokhin concept. Uh, Academician Anokhin was the father of uh, functional systems in the uh, former Soviet Union. He's, uh, he was medical doctor and his uh, philosophy, of course, uh, was primarily taught in medical schools. But when it comes to... organism as a functional system. Nobody ever done better job than he did.
0: What what was his name again, Val?
1: Academician Anokhin, A-N-K-H, no, A-N-O-K-H-I-N, Theory of Functional Systems. All right. So our technology, original technology, uh, was created, methods were selected based on his schematics of uh, how human organism adapts to stress, mm. to which mechanisms. And HRV played only one uh, partial role in it, as a autonomic regulation of myocardium, because it can't provide us any other information. So uh but that's a much uh, bigger discussion we can spend next 5 hours discussing it so yeah, yeah, i
2: really just
1: uh when you mentioned that i would encourage everybody always look at the bigger picture there is no single method exists in the world mm. that will give you all the answers you need yeah. there is always more yeah
0: there's no magic bullet
1: there is no magic bullet absolutely
0: yeah, i think that's a good good sound boy. Um, if you have a few more minutes, um, would you be able to talk about your Windows adaptability?
1: Of trainability, that is? Oh,
0: sorry, of trainability, excuse me. Yeah.
1: Hey, you know what? You can call it whatever you want because it all makes sense. It's actually originated as uh, Windows uh, readiness because all, at the end, it's all the same. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it's pretty simple concept. by uh, The good thing about our uh, approach to training is that we make claims based on observations of multiple data points. We don't just come up with hypothetical concepts and try to say, okay, this is the way it is. So in our database, we now have, I don't know, a few million assessments, and that's assessments of people going through their training. This is assessments people performing. For example, we did a few uh research projects where we would collect data right during olympic trials and then compare our biological data to performance data and percentages of their pr and stuff that they can achieve uh based on uh, in different physiological states what we found out quite often success was achieved not based on what they did but rather when they did it. The same exactly workout can produce excellent results today and terrible results tomorrow or the other way around. It's all was based on ability of the body to receive the stressor, digest the stressor and form positive adaptations to that stressor, Mm. right? That's where the windows of trainability came from. When we find out optimal state of your psychophysiological state and ability to receive that stressor and digest it is great, so then we consider these windows of opportunity being open. When your physiology changes due to fatigue, psychological stress, troubles or whatever, and we can measure it through our assessments, uh, then that uh, ability to receive, digest, and form positive adaptation to the stressor can be changed. And therefore, your windows will be uh, partially or completely closed. It depends. Now, I also want to uh, make uh, clarify this claim. Even though in our current technology we use multiple methods, we still continue to improve our concept of window sustainability, because even now there can be other parameters that we're not measuring that can affect this windows. That's why I am constantly ask uh, coaches that use our technology, listen, we give you kind of guidelines, but don't be an idiot. Uh, pay attention yourself. Ask people about their muscular fatigue, because we are not measuring it, let's say, acute muscular fatigue. The chronic muscular fatigue will show itself through, uh, possibly through ECG changes or DC potential changes, but acute muscular fatigue doesn't, and it still needs to be taken in consideration. So uh, that window doesn't depend on the um, uh, parameters that we measure right now. Of course, over we will continue to improve it and put more and more interpretation of data that we collect into that window uh, algorithm. But methodologically, I hope I explained concept uh, already. So in other wor- words, when you are ready to receive the stressor, digest it and form positive adaptation, window is open, push them hard. When that window is uh, partially open, adjust accordingly, knowing uh, what you can and cannot do. And when that window is shut down, don't try to develop that quality, because uh, you're only going to uh, decrease their abilities. So it's quite a simple concept. Did I explain it? Do you think it's uh, clear?
0: Yeah, absolutely. And um, just wrapping up here, Val, what would you say have been the biggest lesson? you have learned in your
1: career? Biggest lessons. (sighs) Biggest lessons. Nobody knows everything and there is no one way uh, to solution. Hmm. There is uh, many different ways and many great ideas. And uh, hopefully, eventually, somebody can uh, unite it in one coherent uh, theory.
0: How do you learn, Val? What's your learning process?
1: Reading. I'm a more visual guy. Uh, listening is good, but uh, I have very hard uh, time staying uh, concentrated when I don't see letters up front of me. So but, surprisingly, uh, rereading a lots of uh, older books that I my didn't understand back in Soviet days. Some fundamentals. I mean. Fundamentals are still a great, great uh, way to go forward. And of course, I'm trying to at least stay on top of uh, what's new out there. Reading is primary uh, scientific articles, Mm -hmm. because I already have in my head certain type of uh, framework of thinking and my own uh, systemic approach, right or wrong. It doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. So uh, Rather than I'm now I can read more successfully the raw data from research and see how it supports or disproves my own uh, framework. So and that's kind of a fun process.
0: What What is your top or uh, your top and current reading recommendation? So what's the number one book you would give away to anyone? And what do you uh, n-
1: normally when it comes to uh, basic understanding uh stress environment, that would be Dr. Hans Selye. Mm-hmm. It's a basic reading that uh, stress of life is a good summary of his overall uh, Theory. It's uh, he has many multiple uh, like medical specific books, but this is kind of easy to read. Yeah, I, uh, have, book, I, have, I actually
0: have that book myself.
1: Yeah, stress yeah. of life is a wonderful uh, book. Uh, I like very much uh, Bernstein and his skill acquisition, dexterity mm-hmm. and his skill acquisition. That's a basics that everybody needs to understand. Um, probably. Uchtomsky on the uh, Dominanta theory, it's a psychophysiology, Mm -hmm. also a great uh, work from uh, early 20th century that still uh, in a way stands uh, to, of course, uh, the, uh, again, as you can see, I'm more Uh, reciting Russian research because that's what I'm Mm -hmm. more familiar with. Uh, Pavlov's, of course, books. Uh, So, uh, I mean, honestly, if I would recommend anybody to read, I would uh, start with the very, very basis because that's what will help you to create your own framework of thinking and then all the future, future information can actually uh be easier to uh, analyze and accept or disregard
0: is there any particular ritual you do on a daily basis that is very important to the success of every day
1: yeah i drink coffee in the morning
0: i knew it. so many people say it's their coffee i've only got two two or three left here for you. Um, what what would your top life advice be to everyone listening? And it, this this advice can be any It can be broad ranging. You know. It can be anything from personal development or something spiritual. It doesn't just have to be limited to physical preparation.
1: Yeah, that's a good one. Uh, never stop learning. What I found out, and now and it applies to all different fields. Right now, I listen to so many and read so many uh, books on all kinds of subjects that I find Weird connections to the field that I spend my life in. So be that on psychology, be that on biology, cosmology, mm-hmm. uh,
0: Quantum physics
1: Quantum physics, I think the more you understand, even on the high level, you, of course we can't be all physicists, but if you understand the basis of our world. Right? So basis of uh, biology, chemistry, uh, cosmology, physicists, just on the top level, just understand it as a system. That will be a great way to improve your more specific knowledge, because all of that play a role in the narrow fields that we normally work
0: in. This next one is just for me because I love history. So I've studied a lot of history in terms of, like, America and the Soviet Union and the Cold War and stuff like that. What was it like growing up in the Soviet Union?
1: Well, you know, when you are in uh, prison and you never see the outside, life uh, appears to be normal because this is the only thing you know. So until I started traveling abroad, I thought we have the hep life uh, there is and to be honest it was for me because uh, most of my sport was uh, covered by government I was very narrow concentrated on my uh, sport performance and I didn't really go outside that field and in that field we had more freedom than most I would say including abilities to travel abroad that was not possible so, I kind of, in a way, even though we were very poor, I felt very privileged because we could visit better places than most. We could uh, spend our time doing what we love, which is not the case for my parents. They had to work for salary. Mm. And we could see the world, which wasn't available to anybody in the Soviet Union. I thought I am pretty, uh, I got it good until. I saw how people live in the Western world, and I don't mean monetarily, I mean the uh, freedoms and opportunities, and that was really, really amazing uh, to observe, and uh, I think that was the best thing that ever happened for uh, me personally, it's a collapse of uh, Soviet Union.
0: It's funny, too, because uh, I don't know if you remember, but at the start of our, our discussion today, you, you asked me, how am I? And my, what was my answer to you. I said, I'm, I'm a white man from a first world country. Yeah. So, like, that, that's been my standard answer to me, because, you know, like, if you are, like, a white male from a first world Western country, like, you hit the lot of, Like, you're, you're so fortunate and so lucky, like, you know what I mean?
1: Yep, so, that's right. That's right.
0: But uh, last Super 8, Val, well, you've got one year left on Earth. How would you spend that year? What would you do?
1: Uh, travel the world if I could financially up, uh, afford it. Definitely.
0: And last one, uh, I'd love to hear your answer. And
1: probably on motorcycle too.
0: Oh, brilliant. I love it. I love you. your badass. Uh badass. Last one, Fia. I'd love to hear your answer for this. So um, I'm bringing it out for dinner and you can invite five people to our dinner and these people can be dead or alive. Who would you bring to the dinner and why?
1: Ah interesting, that's very interesting. Uh, Bernstein would be one of them for sure,
0: cool.
1: no question.
0: What is Hammer? Uh,
1: Anohin would be another one,
0: okay.
1: Einstein, Einstein,
0: Einstein
1: would be uh, one of them from physics, and um, Carl Sagan.
0: That's four, even more.
1: Okay, so one more. Let me think a uh, little bit here. Hmm, very good uh, question. I no, no, this question. I, I would say Matliev, but he was such a uh, terrible person. So I would not uh, <laughs> well, invite was, him for was, dinner because it wouldn't be... uh wow. You know, actually, I would uh, then it will go personal. I would uh, really invite uh, the person that had profound impact on me. And he was uh, like a father when I moved to the United States. Uh, His name is not known. He is no famous person. uh, But he had a nonprofit foundation for children where he traveled all over the world uh, to save children. And uh, I, we become very close with his family, and I learned quite a lot from him. So, but okay. this person will mean nothing to most of the people.
0: What, what What was his name? If If you can share uh,
1: his name, was Bob Conti Bob Conti. and Saint Philip de Paul, non profit foundation for children.
0: Saint Vincent de Paul, was it?
1: Saint Philip the Paul. (laughs) I don't know if it exists anymore or doesn't because uh, he was killed by one of the people that was actually, he was helping and uh, which was terrible tragedy. But uh, that was my kind of moral compass when it comes to how I perceive
0: well, this has, been, um, this has been a phenomenal conversation and I, I really do appreciate your time. And just for the listeners who want to learn more about you, where can they get more information?
1: So what about it?
0: So if, if people want to contact you or, or, or learn more about you know yourself or just want to get in contact with you, where, where uh-huh. are they to go? Uh,
1: well, they probably can. Uh, well, my... Email is val.nasetkin at omegawave.com, but uh, I'll be very honest, I have hundreds of emails per day. Mm-hmm. Sometimes it's easier to contact Omega Wave, like uh, yeah. Michael Limatainen, and he will uh, pass to me the ones that are uh, truly uh, needed the answer.
0: Cool. Uh, I'll put all that in the show notes. So... Well, once again, thanks so much. I appreciate your time. I'll just wrap up the show here and say goodbye to the offline. So for everyone listening, we really appreciate your earbuds. But for now, take care, be well, and Thank you.
2: stay strong.